The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are... You may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. Today, we're going to discuss a topic that has been overlooked and misunderstood, anorexia in males. Professional focus, as well as social media, has most often associated anorexia nervosa, an eating disorder characterized by self-starvation with females. It will probably surprise you to know that 25% of those diagnosed with this eating disorder are males. Our guest today is Dr. Tom Wooldridge. He is going to discuss his groundbreaking new book, Understanding Anorexia Nervosa in Males. He offers a broad focus on causes and treatment of anorexia from many perspectives. Dr. Tom Wooldridge is an assistant professor and chair in the Department of Psychology at Golden Gate University. In addition to this book, He is editing a second book, Psychoanalytic Treatment of Eating Disorders, When Words Fail and Bodies Speak. He is currently the Executive Director at the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders and has a private practice in Berkeley, California. Dr. Tom Wooldridge, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. It's a real contribution, this book. May I call you Tom? Sure. Okay. um, Tom, what do you think is the reason that men have been so misunderstood and um, sometimes misdiagnosed in in the area of eating disorders? Yeah, you know, it's a complicated question because if we look back historically, um, the first medical diagnoses of anorexia were made in the 1600s, the late 1600s, by a guy named Richard Morton, who wrote a book called um, a book called The Treatise of Consumptions, which um, provided really um, detailed explorations of tuberculosis. But in that book, he also talked about anorexia, and he talked about it in two different patients, one of whom was male. Hmm. And then if we look over the next you know, a few hundred years, we see different um, physicians and researchers noting the disorder in men. I think it wasn't until maybe psychoanalysis really gained prominence, um, you know, in the 20th century um, that men started to fall by the wayside. Um, Psychoanalysts had conceptualizations of anorexia that had to do with things like, um, you know, a defense against oral impregnation. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and they, and they had ways of thinking about anorexia that really excluded men from diagnosis. And then if we fast forward to the dsm four, we've got diagnostic criteria that really um, highlight the disorder in women and, and um, don't provide um, similar criteria for men. So, so for example, in the dsm four, um, we've got this criteria that People with anorexia have to be at least 15% below the population mean in weight. But uh, a percentage criteria like that is not so appropriate for men because 
um, males have on average half the body fat of females, so their weight can be higher in spite of having an active case of anorexia nervosa. Mm. Um, the other relevant criteria would be that the DSM-4 listed amenorrhea, or the absence of three consecutive menstrual cycles as a criterion, and hmm. it didn't provide an equivalent endocrinological criteria for men. So if we were to let our audience know, at this moment, um, now that we have DSM-5, and for both our, our parents out there as well as our professionals and any a man of any age, what would it look like, anorexia nervosa in a male? But the young men who come to you or, or are sent to you, what do you see as the diagnostic signs? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, just to speak to the, the DSM-5, it did correct those two criteria. Um, so, so what you see is a, is a restriction of food intake leading to a low body weight. But, you know, I think we have an image of a, of a, you know, a young female adolescent who's, um, completely in a state of starvation. And certainly men can present like that. But more often, I think, because cultural standards of beauty for men emphasize things like leanness and muscle, um, you see a kind of, um, you know, weight loss, emphasis on muscle development, emphasis on fat loss that's taken too far. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it may not be as immediately apparent, you know, when you see a young man, you know, who's fully dressed, who's going about his life. It's not as necessarily as easy to tell as it might be, um, you know, with someone who's in a later stage of the illness. Now, would you say we often we often when we speak about women who are doing the starving, we often you know blame the bombardment in the media by you know airbrushed twiggy type women who um, are on every magazine cover. Do you think men are as impacted by the cultural bombardment as women are? Yeah, I don't know that I could say that they are or they aren't as impacted, but I can certainly mm-hmm. say that they are deeply impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've known for 30 years that um, social experiences like advertising influence our internal body shape model. More than 30 years, actually, probably 40 or 50. And we see that in women, um, as the media ideal has become thinner, the prevalence of anorexia and bulimia have increased. Mm-hmm. And we see similar trends in male advertising. So, you know, the number of magazines that emphasize men's appearance has increased enormously. Men are increasingly depicted as sexual objects. You know, even children's action figures have become more muscular. I mean, it's remarkable to mm. look at pictures of action figures, you know, from 20, 30 years ago versus how they are now. It's, it's you know, action figures of today are not even physiologically possible. The kinds right. of proportions you see. That's interesting. That's so interesting. And you and you know, I came across that study. The um, it's called the Growing Up Today study, where they followed thirteen thousand kids, and they you by the time young men and young women were twenty three and twenty five, ten percent of the women were using laxatives, and twelve percent mm-hmm. of the men were using some sort of product to build muscles, in mm-hmm. an attempt to in an attempt to achieve these unrealistic dimensions. So Mm -hmm. if these are typical kids, the kids who, the young men who you're seeing, in other words, they've started to take it to an extreme. Yeah, and I think that's really related to the fact that, you know, what um, starts out as a response to the average expectable pressures of living in our society around body ideal and weight and shape, um, those responses can very quickly become means of coping with, you know, emotional pain at, at, at a much broader level. Mm. Now, in and terms of... Feels, go, go ahead. Yeah. Well, uh, I just wanted to underscore what you said. It becomes somewhat of a solution. And I was so interested when you wrote in your book that Men often start 
with more teasing and bullying about weight when they first start entering puberty than women. That's Is that often a trigger for some young men to start the starving? You know, there's there's certainly research on that, and, and, and statistically, it does seem like teasing and bullying are significant, but by, by no means always, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that's happening before the disorder gets going. But I have to say, in my practice, it's very rare that I've seen a young man who doesn't, you know, on his own, pretty early in the treatment, bring up some kind of experience of feeling, um, you know, ashamed or humiliated you know, because of some comment that a friend or a parent or coach um, made to him about his body and the way his body looks. So, you know, I think in in early adolescence and even younger, uh, children are are understandably incredibly um, vulnerable around, you know, self-esteem in relation to the body. I, I really like the way you said that because it, it seems like, and you've, you mentioned throughout the whole book, there's a combination, a comp, a comp, really a complicated combination of factors. You even mentioned athletics, and I remember way back when I was in high school, dating a young man who was on a gymnastics team. And I, I just knew him for a little while, but he was in one of the military academies. Whenever he would come to visit, I really think he came to try to eat something of my mother's food. He had just come from a week of only eating oranges. He was always starving to weigh in, Tom. And he he would look terrible when he came, you know, uh, rings around his eyes. And so... I don't know that every young man who does kind of crazy things for a team ends up this way, but you can see how many factors could start to weigh in. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, certainly sports don't cause eating disorders, but, um, you know, sports where aesthetics are really important or where you have to make weight for competition or Mm -hmm. where a low body weight is better for performance. Um, they can really encourage um, vulnerabilities that already are there, um, mm-hmm. you know, in really problematic ways. Now, those vulnerabilities, what are some of the things you've seen? I know you mentioned sex and sexuality are, are an issue for men, sometimes even more than women, uh, gender confusion. Maybe you can speak a little to that. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, you know, certainly many of the earlier psychoanalytic explanations really emphasize the role of developing sexuality. Um, you know, I have to say as a caveat that, and maybe just to frame our entire discussion, you know, anorexia is a set of symptoms that can be reached by many different developmental pathways. Mm. So any any conceptualization we offer, it's not going to apply to every person. You know, there's always going to be um, people who get there for different reasons. Well said. Um, so, okay. You know, uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, for, for many boys, certainly sexuality is important. You know, we often see the disorder emerging around puberty, which is, you know, a, a time of significant maturation. And, and sexuality is frightening. It opens up a whole world of developmental challenges. And that's doubly true when a young boy is coming into a stigmatized sexual identity, you know, if he's gay or if he's transgender. Um, and, and, you know, one way of thinking about it would be that anorexia can be a means of um, stalling that maturation and all of the emotional work that it entails. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what you've just done is really lift the onus on any particular thing, because I just want to repeat what you said. Anorexia is a set of symptoms, but the causes could be multiple, many, and from different directions. I think that's exactly right. Hmm. Because so often with girls, there's been the assumption of a controlling mother and the, the way, and the issue of separation and not eating as a way to exert some control for the young woman. Um, and you're, that's just one of many causes for women. Is that ever involved with males, too? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, you know, I can certainly say that clinically, I mean, this is an idea that comes from Hilda Brook, um, you know, that, that patients with anorexia are having trouble with separation and individuation because they have a caretaker, usually the mother, who's overly intrusive and controlling. And, mm-hmm. and, and usually, and I think this piece is important, usually because she has some legacy of intergenerational trauma herself that's making her quite anxious about her child. And, mm-hmm. you know, that trauma could have to do with food, weight, and shape also, or with something else. Um, and that's certainly one developmental pathway that I've seen in my practice numerous times. And also, it doesn't apply to everyone. Hmm. Hmm. So in some ways, the family piece, I know you say is so important because as a mother, I would say the more worried you are about your child, the more controlling you get, the more controlling you get, the more you interrupt this child's attempt to separate by doing whatever he or she is wanting to do or needing to do. That's right. I think that's exactly right. You know, we one, one critique of Hilda Brooks' way of thinking is that we're seeing people in our offices who are in an acute stage of illness. And so, of course, the parents are going to be more, um, you know, quote-unquote, controlling because, you know, they're terrified about their child's health, which makes complete sense. Mm. I think what matters much less than sort of um, the cause is, is what do you do now? And I think that's mm-hmm. one thing that family-based treatments have really clarified that it's essential that the parents are able to work as a team in helping their child to get treatment and to gain weight and to address the emotional problems that got them there in the first place. Perfect. Um, You know what, we're going to take a brief break and when we come back, we're going to speak more about treatment and causes and even the role of internet sites with anorexia nervosa in males. You've been listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with Dr. Tom Wooldridge about his new book, Anorexia Nervosis in Males, Understanding Anorexia Nervosis in Males, An Integrative Approach. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. 
You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Tom Wooldridge. He's the author of the groundbreaking new book, Understanding Anorexia and Nervosis in Males. And we've been talking about the fact that many different causes can lead to the symptom profile that we would look at if we diagnose a young male with anorexia nervosa. And now we're talking a bit about treatment. And before we go to specific treatment, uh, Dr. Aldridge is one of the few people who's really looked into the role of pro-anorexia internet sites. You know, we're in a world of social media, and certainly that influences young people. So let's ask... What is the role of these sites, Dr. Woodbridge, and actually do they help? Do they impact treatment? Do they become obstacles for recovery? What's your take on this? Yeah, so, you know, I I got really interested in these pro-anorexia sites or pro-ana sites, they're often called, because I was increasingly hearing about them from both men and women. And so, you know, I wanted to really get a sense of, how are people using these forums? What are they and how are people using them? And and what I found is that pro-anorexia sites are not one thing. They don't really reflect single philosophy. There are pro-anorexia sites that say that eating disorders are a lifestyle. Others say it's a medical condition. Um, you know, some emphasize the positive, quote-unquote, positive aspects of the disorder, and others emphasize the negative aspects of the disorder, and then everything in between. But what I wanted to do is is really get a better sense of, of how are kids using these sites? Because, of course, in the treatment community, there's been a, you know, a huge um, amount of alarm about these sites. I mean, you know, kids are on these websites, these discussion forums, um, you know, talking to other people with eating disorders, often trading tips and tricks about how to lose weight, um, how to quiet hunger how to, um, you know, maintain their eating disorder while engaged in treatment. So there's a lot of, there's a huge subversive element that's involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, on the face of it, these disorders are hugely, prob- I mean, these um, communities are hugely problematic. What I found is that some people, some of the time, were also using them as a support system. Hmm. Um, people who were ambivalent about recovery, thinking about recovery, um, and, and that at times um, those needs for support could get met. And so that led me to start to think about how to work with pro-anorexia forms in the treatment process. Hmm. And, and what I've started to emphasize is a very detailed inquiry with each patient about how they use them, what they use them for, and what keeps them on them. What need is being met by these forums that isn't being met, say, in their um, lives with friends and family. Um, because what I've, what I've found is that you can't, you often can't just take these forms away. You know, kids are so connected to technology now. They have phones, they have computers, they have iPads. It's very hard to tell somebody to stop using the forms. If they don't want to, they'll find a way. So I found you really had to go there with them to really try to understand what it meant for each particular person and, and mm-hmm. with the hope that, you know, then over time they could start to move away from participation in, in those kinds of sites. Mm. And in your book, you, you really show, I mean, that some sites are literally showing what you described as horrific pictures. They've been kind of made movie stars look even thinner. And yet here and there, I love the examples you gave, and it fits your inquiry with, why does this boy need this site? Where, with people were saying at times, uh, at least someone here hears me. I don't feel so alone. Other people were responding, whether you get recovery or not, just know that we care about you. So there tended to be somewhere in the background hints that maybe they weren't just going on these sites to learn a new way of dropping weight or abating hunger, but because somebody, they 
because it could deal with the isolation, someone to talk to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, you know, so much of this disorder is about isolation and alienation. I think as kids get more um, obsessed with counting calories and losing weight, um, it, it really starts to dominate their entire emotional landscape. You know, friends and family often fall by the wayside relationships with parents often become quite adversarial because, understandably, parents want them to, you know, just stop. Um, Mm -hmm. And that can lead to an incredibly painful kind of interpersonal isolation. Mm. Do you think that boys with anorexia are actually more, feel more stigmatized and more isolated and more shame than the girls? Yeah, you know, again, I don't know um, how exactly to compare the two, but I can definitely say that men and boys with anorexia do feel a great deal of stigma and shame, you know, in part because anorexia has has been culturally labeled as a woman's problem. Hmm. You know, it's been thought of as a, a disorder that affects young girls. And, you know, I think an additional thing to think about is what in the literature is, is called, you know, traditional constructions of masculinity. You know, that, that, that even in the culture now, and I live in Berkeley, where this is probably less so than many places, but I think it's still very true, there's a kind of implicit idea that men should... Um, it's not masculine to seek help. It's not masculine to delve into your emotional life, to shed tears. And... That kind of, and, and this is a kind of attitude that can be held by, you know, the boy who's coming in for treatment, but also by his family and by his friends. Right. And, and of course, that way of thinking about masculinity is um, both a huge obstacle to help-seeking behavior, but, but also to, um, you know, knowing that you need help. I mean, that really creates a lot of dissonance for, for kids. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't even identify themselves as needing help given that until the family starts to really get very upset, in which case, I love the question, you invite the family and all the caregivers to consider what role is this eating disorder serving in this boy's life? Because Mm -hmm. the whole idea that you even mentioned with the Internet is if this is playing an important role, weight gain alone is not going to make the difference. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So there's a, a theme here that I'm trying to emphasize, which is, which is this. I think that um, eating disorders as, as a psychiatric diagnosis have become incredibly medicalized, where there's a, a huge emphasis on, you know, regaining lost weight um, and, you know, getting rid of problematic attitudes about food, weight, and shape as quickly as possible. And of course, that all sounds good, you know, on the on the on the face of it. But I think we also have to recognize the deeper um, emotional life that each patient has, and you know that there's a great deal of nuance in each particular case about what role does the eating disorder serve for this person right now? What role does it serve in his family? And and you know, how do we start to tease that apart so that we're not just taking away these kids? agency, that we're not just doing things to them, enlisting them as partners in the healing process. Mm. It's it's such a great question. So maybe you can speak a little bit to what, how do you picture treatment? I know you describe an integrated approach. Maybe you can share your approach in terms of not just taking away what this young person seems to be desperately needing, even though at a tremendous cost, and involving uh-huh. and involving the people who matter in his life. How would you describe the approach that you're suggesting? Yeah, so, you know, the approach I, I take is an integrative approach that draws on, on many different ways of working with people. Um, so, you know, those different ways would be, there's four orientations that I draw on. One really has to do with everything we know, um, engaging patients and their families and building working alliances around recovery. 
So how do we help patients work with their own ambivalence about recovery? And we have to recognize that because the disorder serves such an important emotional purpose for every individual patient, you know, patients are often, always, I would say, hugely ambivalent about recovering. It's both a friend and an enemy, the eating disorder. Mm. Right. So, you know, we have certainly, you know, many, many years of ways of thinking about how to work with ambivalence in both individuals and their families. That's one orientation. The second would really be a biobehavioral orientation. So this really looks at the um, biological aspects of the disorder. So malnutrition, um, damage to things like the teeth, um, the bones, the bone density, um, you know, enlisting the help of physicians, psychiatrists, nutritionists. Um, that whole domain, you know, is really essential both for, you know, preserving health. Of course, eating disorders take an enormous toll on physical health. Um, but also because, you know, if someone is um, in a state of acute malnutrition, it's very hard to do the deeper kind of psychological work that's necessary for full recovery. Um, the third orientation would be what's called systemic or family systems, and it has to do with working with the whole family and thinking about, you know, how do we help um, the mother and father, if that's the case, um, you know, work as a team in helping their child towards recovery. What role does the eating disorder serve in the family? And the last orientation is the psychodynamic orientation. So that really has to do with looking at the deeper issues, you know, past trauma, issues of self-esteem, issues of sexuality and maturation. What role are all of those and many more playing in the eating disorder? And, and how is this person envisioning life after recovery? Hmm. So... I, I love I love the integrative approach. Let me ask you some questions from some of the examples in the book, and the examples in the book make it such a contribution. Um, you, I think of, in a number of cases, Tom, it was the dental enamel. It was the enamel on teeth and the corros- corrosive effect of making oneself vomiting vomit that was one of the tipping points to identify something's not right here. And um, it's interesting, what were the tipping points? The other thing that I think I might miss, I think a parent might miss is, and you laid out in a number of cases, once someone's malnourished enough, their thinking and cognitive functioning is going to be impaired so even the young person's not making sense or quite getting the complicated situation they're in or the real impact on their body and mind. Would you say most of the young people really when malnourished don't even grasp the situation and its, uh, its severity? Um. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, I think it varies in that, you know, some kids are in overt denial about, um, you know, the severity of their situation, and they haven't really taken in that their life is on the line. But, you know, there can be more um, painful situations in which kids do seem to have at least some intellectual grasp of what's happening, you know. Mm -hmm. There's an aspect of, of severe cases of anorexia nervosa that... Um, you know, that um, there is a kind of um, preoccupation with with death, with a kind of parasuicidal behavior. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think mm-hmm. that's not the majority of cases. But you're sort of, it's good you're clarifying my mistake, which is they're, they're generally aware there's a problem, especially when someone medically or a dentist at someone's showing them you know what the implication is of the um, of the small amount of food they're taking in, or the or, or the amount of food that they're eliminating. Now, most parents, uh, you say you engage the parents. Are most parents willing to get involved in a kind of family therapy in addition to dealing with the medical piece of weight gain or? Um, you know, sub, literally medical survival by reason of trying to find a way to increase the eating. Are most parents willing to do that? 
You know, I think so. And I think that really comes down to the engagement and the alliance building. It's so essential for the clinician, the treatment provider, to build a relationship with each member of the family that's going to be involved in treatment. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, it depends on the age of the patient. I see a lot of kids um, here in Berkeley who are, you know, 14, 15. But I also see a lot of kids that are at, you know, college um, at, at, at Cal who are, you know, in their 20s and often their parents aren't local and so they are less directly involved in the treatment process. Um, uh-huh. But, you know, I think when it's possible, it's it's immensely helpful to um, develop communities of support, to um, try to help the family make use of each other as a resource instead of an adversary. Um, but mm-hmm. it's a tricky and often pretty nuanced process. Mm. We're going we're gonna to have to take a break. When we come back, one of my questions is you do mention genetics and also parental trauma or eating issues. And I want to pick up on that and we'll continue to talk about treatment. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Tom Woldridge. He's the author of the book, Understanding Anorexia Nervosis in Males. We'll be right back. Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Tom Woldridge, and we've been really speaking about the integrated type of treatment he recommends for young men suffering with anorexia nervosa. Before our last break, I asked about, um, we we're talking about the family origin. So my question is, is there a genetic link? Is it a family for which one or more of the parents or another sibling has had a food problem? Do you ever see any of those kinds of correlations or connections, um, Tom? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that there's uh, uh, genetics is, is a hot topic right now, and I think it's something we'll know a lot more about in the next, you know, five or 10 or 15 years. Certainly, you know, there does seem to be a genetic vulnerability, um, you know, and that's established through things like twin studies. Um, the problem there is it's not at all clear 
what's being transmitted in terms of a genetic vulnerability. So, you know, whether it's a biologically based difficulty with early feeding, you know, as an infant or um, other factors related to temperament. I think that the Mm. genetic role has really been emphasized because, of course, there's a desire to decrease, um, you know, stigma and shame and blame um, that are often placed on families, and that makes a lot of sense to me. But I would hate, I think it would be really unfortunate if genetic explanations um, caused us to overlook the role of things like, you know, intergenerational trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think clinicians who are working with this population day in and day out regularly hear stories about, you know, parents or, um, you know, aunts and uncles who have difficulties with food, weight, and shape, you know, difficulties with um, psychiatric difficulties of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're working with individuals and families, it's often quite possible to trace the line of intergenerational transmission. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of treatment, it's it's quite important, at least in my opinion, um, to emphasize the role of psychological factors, because those are the things that can be directly worked with right now. Hmm. I love the idea also of lifting blame from everyone and rather assuming other members of the family may have suffered in similar or different ways and we know that suffering trauma gets passed on. How it shows, how it outs itself is often in in a child or through a child. So the idea of pulling the family back together as a way to help them help their child makes so much sense. Right. Um, So if we were to say, if you have a parent and every time we just had Thanksgiving and kids came home, so if a parent noticed their son came home looking somewhat skeletal, uh, what would you suggest? How should they approach this possible problem? Yeah, you know, I think even in the way you phrased it right there, you know, if the child looks somewhat skeletal, that's a signal to you that there's a problem that needs, you know, further understanding. doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean your child has an eating disorder. I mean, it could be that he's, you know, working too hard at school and, and you know, not getting to the cafeteria often enough, but it's not something that you want to dismiss. And I think um, we can't underestimate the role of, of denial in the sense that denial is is a kind of um, you know wish wishing away of a very deep and terrifying worry you know that there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with your child. Um, so I would really encourage people number one if they if they have any intuition that there's a problem to not let it stop there to really make those appointments with physicians with psychologists and just get it checked out you know maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe things are okay, but there's really no harm in ruling it out. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say is to get educated. So, you know, the book is my attempt to do that, but there's more and more resources for parents of boys, for boys themselves. Um, and, you know, we can talk about some of what those are, but that that give you a sense of what to look for. So if you see a preoccupation with food, a preoccupation with body shape, with weight loss, with dieting, with working out. That's a big one for boys, you know, working out, um, going to the gym. Um, these are all things that, you know, you shouldn't take lightly, that you should really look into more. Hmm. Let's let's give our, our listeners that information right now. For instance, Tom, if they wanted to find your book and you and your resources, first of all, how would they find the book Anore- Understanding Anorexia Nervosa in Males? Yeah, so the book is Understanding Anorexia Nervosa in Males, and it's available on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Easy to find. You can also go to my website, which is TomWoldridge.com. That's T-O-M-W-O-O-L-D-R-I-D-G-E.com. And the other resource that I'm quite involved with right now is the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders. Um, so if you just type that into Google, the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders, or it's N-A-M-E-D-I-N-C dot O-R-G, um, you know, that's an advocacy organization that we've 
revitalized over the past couple of years that really attempts to get this information out there. Hmm, terrific, terrific resources. Now, let's go back to our, our, our son who comes back skeletal at Thanksgiving. And so if I want to follow up um, and I decide, okay, I, he's not coming home again till Christmas, or I could wait, let's suppose I was going to wait till he came home at Christmas break, how would I find... Should any general practitioner um, be the one to um, beg him to go to with me? Um, should or, or is there a site where you would recommend a certain medical practitioners who are used to dealing with this or certain therapists who are used to dealing with this? How would a person find local professionals? Yeah, you know, I think it's unfortunate, but at this stage, often the parents do well to be um, advocates for their treatment providers to get educated. So, mm-hmm. you know, if I if my son came home from college and was in that state, you know, I would I would call our family physician and tell him what I saw and tell him what I've been reading and what I've heard on this interview and ask him if he's educated about it. And if not, to point him to some websites and, you know, to, to make sure that he takes the problem seriously as a potential problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so then, you know, you'd want to go in for a general checkup, see how much weight has been lost, how quickly, um, where is the weight, um, you know, in terms of healthy ranges. And I think an equally, if not more important component is to sit down with your child and have a conversation. You know, what's been going on? What's coming up for you at school? What's happening right now with your food? With your weight, I noticed you've lost a lot of weight. What do you think that's about? And to really try to understand. And so parents are in this very tricky position, which is, on the one hand, they want to take these problems very seriously. On the other hand, you know, being too anxious, too intrusive can often alienate, you know, teenagers. Um, Mm -hmm. So you're, you're really walking that tightrope of opening up a conversation and and not letting it drop while also not um, sort of totally disempowering a young adult. So if a, now you see, of course, we have the luxury of seeing people in our office. It's interesting. It's easy to see someone else's child. I would have had a harder time with my own. So if you say to someone, you know, you're, you give an example of a young man in your book who I think he was 5'11 and 110 pounds. Ultimately, after recovery, he's 170 pounds or 140 pounds, I think. Um, So if you say you've lost, you know, 30 pounds or 20 pounds this semester, um, the kid says, no big deal. You have nothing to worry about. Leave me alone. Uh, That's your 19-year-old. Where does a parent go there from that? Yeah, well, you know, I think that's where you're in this very tricky territory. There's not a sort of simple solution here, but I think if Mm -hmm. your child has lost 30 pounds, you know, from, you know, 140 down to 110 over the course of, uh, say, a semester or two, you have every right to be incredibly alarmed. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. quite a a drop in weight, you know, a huge change that Mm -hmm. you want to take very seriously. And so, you know... Um, you want to, at that point, definitely enlist the help of a physician, of a psychotherapist. And, and you know, if, um, and, and I have this happen many times, you know, parents come and meet with me first and then bring uh-huh. their child. Uh-huh. So okay. that's an attempt for us to really understand the uniqueness of their situation and try to clarify what the next best step would be for their particular child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, um, and I can tell, I mean, it's clear from what you've written and the, all the, the young men that you've dealt with, that as long as we keep the blame out of the picture and more of the, you know, I'm not blaming you for losing the weight, but you're my child. I'm concerned about, you know, your health and your life. I would hope you would do it for me. So, you know, so you just start with basics. And I like your idea of sitting with a therapist because that's, I think parents really need support no matter what their Mm -hmm. children are facing. Everyone feels so alone and they also feel like it's only happening to them and their child and no one else would understand. And when they realize how many families 
face this. I mean, you're saying boys are a quarter of the number of people diagnosed. You don't feel so alone or, you know, Mm -hmm. so identified as having made mistakes or whatever you start to fear. Yeah, I think that's really well said, you know, that any kind of support that the parents can get, their own therapy, friends who have dealt with similar issues, um, that that can be an incredible springboard for moving forward in other ways and helping get the kid involved in treatment. Mm. It made me wonder, because I'm a big group person, if you've ever come across a group online that is strictly for recovery, not a pro-anorexia group, but a pro-recovery group, or if you've ever had the young men who you've worked with, have they ever been in a group given the isolation? I wondered if that ever would even be feasible. Yeah, you know, there certainly are, and this is part of what we've wanted to do with the National Association for Males with Eating Disorders, is to um, really advocate with treatment centers for, um, you know, services provided for males. I mean, I think if you're a, a young girl with an eating disorder, it's pretty easy to find a group right now. Um, right. Much harder, I think, if you're a young boy. Mm-hmm. And, of course, in the eating dis- disorders world in general, I think groups have been regarded rightly and wrongly with some suspicion because there's a worry that groups can develop um, things like competition about weight loss. Um, so there's all these factors that I think need to be taken into account when a group is forming. But, you know, groups can be incredibly helpful. And I've certainly seen kids that benefited enormously from, from groups how to find groups, I think, is, is unfortunately not so easy. I have not seen groups like that online. Um, and actually, even locally, I haven't seen them. Mm. And, and you know, part of that, I think, is, is that it's tough to get together a kind of critical mass of people that want to participate. Um, but, you know, there may be deeper reasons. I think that's worth some thought. Yeah, and um, given the wonderful work you've done, maybe a time will come when a boy who's recovered or a young man who's recovered would want to be the sponsor of another young man who's trying. You know, sometimes what we've seen in the field is the best advocate is someone who's walked the, that road and, and knows the other side of it. You know, we're just about out of time. I want to thank you, Dr. Tom Woodridge, for coming on the show. I think the show... And your new book, Understanding Anorexia in Males, really, really opens the door to understanding this type of suffering as well as addressing the shame, the isolation, and really giving young men and their parents really some important ideas about treatment. I thank you for coming, and I thank you for the book. Tremendous contribution. It's been my pleasure. Okay, Um, I want to thank my listeners and I want to remind you, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, under Voice America, Psych Up Live. Remember to drop me a comment or a question about this show or any of our podcasts at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.